before we open God's word together, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to think, like to be suspicious of anything that would cause you to not listen to God's word carefully today. So Genesis 3 is going to be a familiar passage. And sometimes that familiarity means like you've heard so many talks on it. It's been dissected in so many ways. Maybe that would be the obstacle for you hearing this as clearly. Or maybe it's just when we come into Genesis 3, we're, we're talking about talking serpents, forbidden fruit. I, I don't know if that makes you go in your mind to something maybe so primitive, something so far, you know, it just seems maybe so far removed that you wonder if this is kind of like talking lions and princesses or some tale or something like that, and that becomes an obstacle for you to hear God's word. I, I want to caution you, like you will do yourself no favors if, you, if there's anything in you that says like, this doesn't really apply to me, this really doesn't speak to the world where I am, because I totally believe it does speak to the world we live in. So I just want you to hear this passage with those words in mind. So I'm actually going to ask Heidi Williams to come. She's going to begin reading in verse 1 of Genesis 3. Let's hear from God's word today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi, for reading. I'm guessing I'm not the only one that gets frustrated when I'm misunderstood, when someone misjudges what I was trying to do, when someone misrepresents something, doesn't give me like a fair hearing on my motives. It's an extremely frustrating place to be. And I start there because our series has been, as you see, like knowing God. We have been looking at Genesis 1 and 2 through the lens of like, let's, let's get to know him better. And we've seen a God that certainly deserves our worship and deserves our praise, deserves to be loved, deserves to be trusted. That's what we've been seeing as we've gone through the book of Genesis. But actually, when we come to Genesis 3, especially the first portion of the chapter, God has talked about, but he's misquoted. You, you actually don't get the know God better because of all the misrepresentations of him. He's misjudged. 
And I think it ought to make us take note because awful things happen when our view of who God is gets distorted and it gets distorted immensely in these first few verses of Genesis 3. A couple characters are introduced. I hope you keep your Bible open or like the screen on. I hope you follow along. So we're just going to look like very, very carefully at these verses today. Verse 1 introduces two characters. It tells us about a serpent, which the serpent is meant to stand in. We don't have time to chase down every reference and make every connection here. But the serpent is meant to stand into for the adversary or Satan, as he's described in other places, or the devil, as he's described in other places. It's meant to tell us that there is this, per, there is this figure in the garden that is actually going to be opposed to God. But it does remind us at the beginning, this is a serpent that God made. So we're not meant to think of it as if there are these two kind of rival, equally powerful beings in the garden. No, God made the serpent. So there's no like equal rival here. God has a power and authority, but there is certainly an opponent to everything that God wants to do in the garden is not just the serpent, but also the woman. And she's referred to that mostly in this chapter until we find her name at the end of this chapter, which her name is Eve. As you walk through this chapter, we're going, yes, we want to know God. So we're going to listen to places in this chapter where who God is, the God we're supposed to worship, love, trust, enjoy, obey. How is a view of God distorted? As you read Genesis 3, right at the beginning, you realize that the clarity of God is distorted. God's clarity is distorted right out of the gate. We have a question. It says in verse 1, did God actually say, the serpent is verbalizing this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? I mean, are, we, are we clear on that? That's what the serpent is introducing. As the serpent like, makes this suggestion, puts a question where there had been a command. Actually, no, God, he is misquoting, the serpent is misquoting what was very, very clear in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, God said, you can freely eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what God said. And here, here we have fuzzy suggestions and questions and clarity diminishes. Has God actually said this? You can almost hear the serpent. Let's use our brains here. Maybe God's sending mixed messages. And the intent, the intent is deceptive that somehow... Undermine, undermining what God has clearly said, undermine the clarity. And maybe we, did God actually say this? Is this really what you heard? It's easy for me. It's likely easy for you to be frustrated when you feel like I said something and someone like blatantly misunderstood. They didn't even try to understand what I was saying. And for God to be so clear in Genesis 2, you can freely eat of any tree, and there's a restriction on this one. For that to be misquoted, it's worth asking. Are there areas where God has spoken clearly, but now we are wanting to turn commands into questions, suggestions? So when God speaks clearly about 
our relationship to each other when God speaks clearly about bitterness or unforgiveness or greed or materialism or anger or lust or pleasure and God speaks and it's clear. Certainly there are mysteries with God. We, we aren't going to know everything, but I, mean, I think even Jesus asked, being asked, what's the great commandment? It's not an unclear answer. There's nothing in Genesis 1 and 2, the commands of God, that are unclear. So what happens when we distort the clarity of God? Often there's something really self-serving. We should suspect that. Something self-serving, opening ourselves up to compromise. God speaks with clarity, but notice here that's distorted. Are we, are we sure he actually said that? It's not just God's clarity that's distorted, but also God's goodness is distorted in these few verses as well. God's goodness or his generosity. You hear the distortion in kind of the back and forth between the serpent and Eve. So you hear like, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then you hear Eve who is going to give us the idea that she's quoting God, but she is going to misquote. Actually, Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's a misquote. So God never said anything about touching the tree. Can't eat, can't touch. That's not what he said. And it may seem like a small thing, like, okay, but I think it does reveal something in our heart where we have a tendency at times to magnify the rules and restrictions, which has the byproduct of like, I don't know, God, if, if you're actually being that good, is God being stingy, magnifying like, here's, here's all the things you can't do. God said we couldn't do this. God said we couldn't do this. God said we couldn't do this. That's why I think legalism can be so dangerous when you start adding, adding, adding. Yeah, it's going to take this to make God happy. It's going to take this to make God happy. I'm not sure that God can be happy with it. Or when we minimize the goodness and generosity of God where he comes off as stingy and we know, like, I don't like stingy people. And is God somehow, he could give me good things, but he's holding back. Is that the way this is going down? I mean, you hear the serpent making that suggestion, and then you actually hear, as Eve misquotes God, you see her almost buying into, kind of playing on the serpent's terms here, as the quote is different, as he's misquoted. Is it frustrating when you try to be good to a friend? Is it frustrating if you're a parent and you try to be good to your kids? And they still perceive you as like, you're just, not, you're just not being good to me. How frustrating that is. Adding so many things. And again, I understand it's just adding like, and God said you better not touch it either. I came across a hymn. I remembered it actually as I was reading this. I think it was written in the 1800s, but the beautiful words that I, I feel like are just very, very applicable to this passage. 
So the hymn is like, there, the title of the hymn is There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. There's a wideness in God's mercy, and it unpacks it like this. There's a welcome for the sinner, and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood, but we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. We magnify his strictness with a zeal he would never own. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Magnify his strictness. Means you don't see his goodness clearly. Do you remember the strict teacher? Do you remember like the strict boss that just makes you do things and you know they're just pointless? She's just flexing her authority. He's just flexing his authority to just remind you that he can tell you what to do. I mean, what do you think of a person that does that? You don't think much of that. And if this is in any way God, our our view that we begin to project on God of like, you know what he'll do? He'll just tell you off limits and it doesn't matter about your good. I'm just going to show you who I am with no thought to what's good for you. What do you think that does to us when we face temptation? A distorted, diminished view of God. Because all of us, this is what I do know, all of us are putting together the story of our life in a, in a certain way, right? We're remembering things and we're interpreting things and we're remembering that this happened and then this happened and then this happened and we remember and we begin to piece those things together. And if we distort God's goodness, we will put together a narrative that says like, here are all these things and I'm connecting all these dots that basically say, God doesn't even care about me. He's not that good. All the while forgetting, not, not potentially not remembering all the ways in which he says, he shows us he's good here and he provides here. And yes, we woke up this morning and we breathe because God willed that to happen. And yes, we have people around us that love and care and are with us 100%. I mean, is that not a gift of God? But when we magnify his strictness, we don't see it because our view of God gets distorted and our vulnerability to going the opposite direction of what God wants for us becomes higher and higher when we distort God's clarity, when we distort God's goodness. And Genesis 3 will give us a clinic in distorting the truthfulness of God. The truthfulness of God. Verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, straight up, you will surely not die. I know what God said, but that's just not going to happen. It's getting at like, Eve, you don't have to worry about God's warnings. You can actually put yourself above his warnings. No one appreciates, like, imagine, imagine if you were entrusted with, like, taking care of people. And you knew if someone walked down a certain road or faced a certain thing, you knew they would be exposed and vulnerable to a lot of danger. You knew that. And it's your job to keep them safe. And imagine if you warn, and you know it, because maybe you've seen it a hundred times. You know they're going to go down that path, and it's going to cause like, great devastation. And so you tell them, like, don't do that. Don't walk down that path. Don't go that direction. Please, please don't. Because if you do, this is going to happen. And what if you plead with them, and they go, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. 
but you know it is. And that's some of the, like, I think it helps us appreciate the emotion in this text when we hear the serpent tell Eve, you're not going to die. Do we begin to think that, yeah, I know God said it, but I don't know that that really matters. I mean, I know I can read it, but I don't know. I know somewhere someone told me there would be consequences, but I'm not sure they would really apply to me. Where does that lead our hearts if we don't think God will do what he says? We also can be brought to the point of distorting God's sincerity. So when I say sincerity, I mean we have to know that God is genuine and honest, that he's real, he can be trusted. But yeah, verse 5, do you see it there? It says, for God knows. This is the, the doubt of sincerity here. For This is what God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is what he doesn't want. He, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. So can we really trust that God is honest here? Eve, don't you want your eyes to be open? Like, don't you want to be able to see everything? Don't you want to be like God? I mean, who wouldn't? And God knows that's what you want. God knows you want to be in charge. of it, And he doesn't want that. He wants to keep all that for himself. And so he doesn't have your best interest in mind. That's why he's telling you not to do that. In some ways, when it just gets exposed like this, it feels like we're in elementary school or middle school. Where God just doesn't want you to. That's why, but it's okay. I mean, yet our heart buys into... Ridiculous, foolish nonsense. They say, well, maybe God is keeping something from me. I know when my motives are questioned, it's frustrating. But here you actually have God's motives being questioned. Here's what God doesn't, I mean, here's why you can't trust him. Here's what God's trying to do to you. When you begin to open that door, wondering if you can really trust him to have your best interest in mind, I'll tell you what you have. And it's actually much of what we experience in temptation, and that is a distorted view of God. Like all of this is leading. It's having to do with how we view God. And, and we're seeing, okay, here's what it looks like when, when the, there are these influences, external words coming to us that distort our view of God, and there's plenty of them. Like, okay, here we have a serpent, and okay, talking serpent may not be the thing you're wrestling with, but how many voices are there where they're coming and making you second guess, ask questions with things that should be concrete? There are plenty of words that are confusing and deceiving and contradicting. And is it, is it remotely possible that there could be voices in our world that could mislead you about who God is? Oh, I think 100%. But I do want you to see it's not just things coming from the outside that are so dangerous. See, this prevents us, like the whole story, when we read it all, it actually prevents us from just playing the, well, the devil made me do it card. Which feels like a, a way we can go, yeah, I mean, it's just like the devil, it's the devil, it's the devil that did. I mean, I, I want you to see firsthand how how vicious and contradictory the devil is in this passage. But there's something more going on. 
It's not just about what's coming in, voices from the outside. It's actually what's going on inside, internally. Temptation has a lot to do with what we hear from the outside, but it has a whole lot to do with how we process those things on the inside. If I were to kind of look at this, I, you begin to watch. I mean, beginning in verse 6, the serpent fades away. We don't hear from him anymore, and we actually are brought into what Eve begins to think and how she begins to process. The back and forth with Eve and the serpent, that stops. And Eve just flies solo. As a matter of fact, you will not hear God's name mentioned, which I think is very telling. Eve is just going to go it alone. You can't make a formula out of Genesis 3, and I'm not trying to do that. But if I were to try to like put together some sort of formula to just understand a little bit, knowing again, this isn't exactly a formula, but I think I would say a distorted view of God plus some sort of unrestrained independence actually equals disaster. What do I mean by unrestrained independence? Well, independence is easily understood, right? I just, I don't need God. I don't need him. He's not going to be an active functional part of my life or this area of my life. And unrestrained means like there's no breaks. There's no boundaries. There's no restrictions. And put those things together and you have what's going on in Eve's mind. There aren't any boundaries. There aren't any limits. There aren't any restrictions. There aren't any breaks. And I don't need God telling me what to do. Instead of we don't live by bread alone but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. I mean, frankly, Eve's going, no, that's not the way it works here. Unrestrained independence living by our own intuition, our own instincts, our own drive, our own attractions minus God. You know, if God and all his rules and all of his wisdom is out of the picture, then it's just me. It's just me thinking through some things, and let's just walk with Eve as she thinks through them. If we have this unrestrained independence, then it's just Eve, or just you, or just me filtering through what is best. And I'm not going to listen to God for that. So what she says is, I look at the tree and it's good for food. That's, that's her thought process. It's good for food. It makes sense. It seems like it's what's best. God gives us the capacity. I mean, don't get me wrong. God gives us the capacity to make judgments. But here she's not even relying on God's help in that capacity to make judgments. Because our capacity to make judgments actually have limits. Why? Because you don't know the infinite possibilities of the universe, and neither do I. We don't know how things will play out, but God does. We don't know where roads will lead. We don't know the future. God does. And so we have limits. And yet when we pretend like we don't, and we don't really have clarity on how God sees the world, and we just go, you know what, this makes sense. It seems like it's best. I don't need God to guide me here. It's a disaster. I can tell you, because this tree is actually not good for food. That's what Eve thought, but it's not. God had clearly said, this tree is not good. Reminds me of Proverbs, I think it says it three or four times. There's a way that seems right, and it ends in death. So if I write God out of the equation, it ends in disaster. 
I'm getting like daily reminders of that as I read through like my Bible reading apart from getting ready for sermons and teaching. My Bible reading is taking me through Isaiah. So it seems like almost every chapter in Isaiah I'm getting reminders of, you know, this is what it looks like when you write God out of the equation or try to. It's a disaster. You know, right after Isaiah, I'm going to read Jeremiah, and the theme of Jeremiah will be, this is what it looks like when you try to write God out of, an, out of the equation of your life, and it's a disaster. And right after that's going to be Lamentations, more of the same. Ezekiel, I mean, this goes on and on. And I, I can look at Israel and go, have you not learned? And then I look at my own life. Am I living, am I thinking I can live by bread alone, or am I taking every word of God? Am I drawn to that? Eve says, in her mind, I mean, she sees that it's good for food, but it, she also sees that this fruit is pleasant to the eyes. And what does unrestrained independence look like when it's applied to what may attract you, what attracts us? What does that look like? So yeah, God made a world in which lots of things are attractive. I'm glad he did. I'm glad that there are things that we will taste and smell and hear and see and touch. And he wired our brain chemistry and even our whole body chemistry to be attracted to things. But what happens when we say, God, I don't need you. I'm going to pursue what attracts me. I'm going to do it my way. This draws me in. This like looks really good. It's pulled me in. What happens is we miss the fact that while some things are attractive, some things could hurt us. So we need to listen to God, like regulate and guide those things that are attractive. Or, or we find something attractive that is out of bounds, or we find something that's attractive and in its place it would be fine, but now it's like way, way overreached its place and now it's all consuming. And God will, God will work on us. The Spirit of God will go to work until we just silence Him and say, now... I don't want any limits. I will do this on my own. Thank you. God gave us the capacity to be attracted, but never with unrestrained independence. We need God's help. Eve thought the fruit was good for food, pleasant to the eyes. And then do you notice verse 6, it also says, she saw that the fruit was desired to make a person wise. In other words, she desired it, she wanted it. It's what, what we want. In this case, she wanted a certain kind of wisdom. She desired to be wise. And again, generally, wisdom's like a really good thing in the Bible. You don't want to be foolish. You don't want to be stupid. You don't want to make mistakes. The wisdom in the Bible, the idea is, like, so she desires wisdom which is a good thing. You're, you're competent when it comes to things in life. In threatening situations, you know, you know what to do. You have a solution. Wisdom is generally like you can act decisively and good things will come out of it like success in life and bad things will be avoided like failure and death. I mean, that's wisdom. That's generally the way it's presented. And yet there is a wisdom that seems like I've got a plan and I don't need God. And that is what's foolish and that's what she desired I really want it. I think it will upgrade my life. I think it will enhance. I don't want to live without it. And I think I can be the arbiter of what's going to win and succeed in the end. But without God, it actually turns into the opposite. 
I don't mean to insult one person in the room, but I will recognize that none of us have the capacity. None of us have the capacity to live life just making our own rules, having our own code of ethics that we apply to ourselves and everybody else as if we could just that independently. You should not, I should not trust myself and my heart to do that. But if I had the creator God that made all of it, formed me in his image, made me after his likeness, tells me where the restrictions are and where the massive amount of generosity and goodness is, shouldn't I listen to that? The formula was a distorted view of God plus some sort of unrestrained independence equals disaster. We're going to unpack more of that disaster. Actually, the rest of the Bible, the rest of human history unpacks that disaster. But just look at verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good, and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The picture is a pathetic one. We're going to expand on it more next week. The eyes are open. Man, that was the promise, wasn't it? Your eyes will be open, and they surely are. And it actually brings shame, and nothing, nothing rewarding comes out of it. Certainly not a, a better experience of humanity. It, notices, it points out they knew they were naked, and in this place, chapter 2, it said they were naked and unashamed. Now it's like they're naked, and they're vulnerable, and they're defenseless. So they try their best at meager coverings. They hide, they're alienated from each other, and nothing, nothing will ever be the same. Genesis 3 comes with such strong warnings, and I hope you hear them. What I realized in studying this week is, I mean, putting you know, time into each individual word and trying to understand what God would have for us today, there actually just is no good news in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, which means you have to keep reading and the story of the Bible to find any good news because you're not finding it in verse... You leave it in verse 7 and it's just... It's heartbreaking and it's all too relatable. But as you keep reading the scripture, you actually do find good news. You certainly find good news and it's not going to be surprising for me to tell you. You find good news when Jesus comes on the scene. Largely because as Jesus even goes into ministry and like starts meeting with people and starts telling them of the good news of the kingdom. The Gospels tell us that one of his first stops after like being baptized, after starting his ministry, one of the first places he goes is into the wilderness where he meets the enemy. He meets Satan. He meets the devil. And the devil also tempts him much like Adam was tempted. Now Jesus is tempted in many of the same ways like this. Doesn't this make sense to you? Isn't this what you want? Doesn't this attract you? Doesn't this make sense? Isn't this like exactly what you've been hungering for, Jesus? And instead of doing what Adam and what Eve did, actually, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam and Eve failed. So that's good news in that we have a Savior who is human like us. 
and then in so many ways just not like us. The thing you did this week that I could map onto Genesis 3, the temptation that we failed at this week that could map on this so easily, Jesus didn't fail, which is good news. But I actually find good news in the remainder of the Bible. And that is that God doesn't just write off people that fail temptation. God comes looking for Adam and Eve and he finds them. Even when they're hiding from him. And when Jesus came, he didn't just congregate around the people that were like perfect or at least knew how to pretend to be. But I think of all the people that Jesus was around and spent time with, he says, I came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. He came for the broken, he came for the blind, he came for the enslaved, he came for the hypocrites, he came for the cocky, the self-righteous, the adulteresses, the people who try and fail, the people who at best are works in progress. And he came to them. I want you to know that he has come for you. So if there's any sense that you are imperfect, welcome to humanity. That's, that's what we are. If there's any sense where like, I sin just like Adam and Eve, I rebel, I'm, I'm stupid and foolish just like they are. Yes, and Christ came. A savior came to rescue so that you would not stay there but you would be saved, rescued. And if you do not know that internally, like I don't just mean hear it and understand that that's generally what Christians believe, but I'm saying personally, if you have not experienced that, I don't know what guilt and shame you would have brought into this place, but I know it's not cheap grace to tell you that Christ can free you of that, can begin to go to work on your heart, can restore And I pray that before you leave, you would have a conversation, that you would talk to me, talk to a friend that brought you, talk to another pastor, talk to anyone who has, like, what are the name tags? Someone that will just at least say, I need to talk more because I want to know God's grace. I want to know God in a personal way. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. Can we pray? Father, thank you for the reminder of your word and how faithful you are to track us down. You do come after us. And where we sin and have our own rebellious story where we thought we knew what's best, we knew what was attractive, we knew what we want, and we went after it, and it has really, really ruined a lot of things. I pray that we would not leave here in despair, but with hope. So give us the hope and point our eyes to Christ. And we pray, even as the psalm will sing in a moment, satisfy us, Lord, uh, satisfy us in you and only you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.